0: Hey, it's Ron. If you haven't listened to our new trailer, give it a listen now. It'll explain our new name and that as of February 1st, this podcast is independent from the Lincoln Project. It'll also explain why we're expanding the scope of things we're talking about on the show. And I could not be more excited to have you with us on this journey. Welcome to Politicology.
1: We are staring down the barrel at the greatest mental health crisis this country has ever seen for various reasons. I mean, it's the kind of crisis we wouldn't be equipped to deal with at the best of times. But we're so weakened. We're weakened by four years of horrifically bad governing. We're weakened by the extraordinary amounts of division. We're weakened by the fact that one side rejects reality, rejects science, rejects Basic human decency and were weakened by the intersecting crises of COVID and the ensuing economic fallout, and weakened by the fact that the last two things were totally avoidable.
0: Since the attack on the Capitol, I've been wondering about the impact that it could have on our collective mental health. Why so many people would storm the Capitol to benefit Donald Trump, the compounding effect of a year laden with traumatic events, Trump's insidious technique for gaining followers, and how we can protect against it in the future. I'm thrilled that our first guest joining me today is Mary Trump. As many of you know, because you sent such glowing reviews of our last conversation, Mary is the author of Too Much and Never Enough, How My Family Created the World's Most Dangerous Man. She is a graduate of Tufts and Columbia Universities, holds a PhD in clinical psychology from the Derner Institute of Advanced Psychological Studies, and she is also Donald Trump's niece. Mary, it is so great to have you back with us today.
1: I'm so thrilled to be back, especially on your first show. This is really exciting. (laughs)
0: It's very exciting for me. So when we spoke back in September, you said you'd finally be able to sleep after January 20th, <laughs> and maybe the interregnum was a little more difficult than you were expecting, but how have you felt over the last couple of weeks?
1: Uh, I was so young and naive back then. <laughs> um, <laughs> actually, the interregnum was a, was as bad as I... I thought it actually could potentially be worse than it yeah. could have. Um just didn't know quite what form that was going to take, but I actually was naive enough to think that things the temperature would sort of immediately turn down on the 20th um i mean i guess it has but we're we're not out of the woods yet by any stretch of the imagination so um the sleep thing was was uh not going to happen <laughs> apparently <laughs> So um,
0: I want to start with this quote from your book uh, where you're writing about the 2016 election uh, that night and then the next morning. You wrote, I was wandering around my house as traumatized as many other people, but in a more personal way. It felt as though 62,979,636 voters but who's counting, had turned this country into a macro version of my malignantly dysfunctional family. So given the fact that nearly 63 million people voted for your uncle in 2016, how do you process the number increasing to 74 million in 2020?
1: I'm still in the process of processing it. Hmm. Actually, it's heartbreaking. It's an absolutely heartbreaking number. for a couple of reasons one i think it would have had less that would have mattered a little bit less i mean it still would have mattered but a little bit less if biden had won in an absolute landslide and if democrats had increased their margins in the house and taken the senate by a significant number not one yeah <laughs> um so the fact that neither of those things happened Makes that number even worse because Donald and his enablers needed to be utterly repudiated. Yeah. And they weren't. Yeah. Uh, because, yeah, uh, don't get me wrong, it's great that he lost. If he hadn't, this can't even imagine wh- where we would be right now. Um, but the Republicans did well at least compared to expectations. And I think that's partially why we see how things have played out since January 6th.
0: So how did you feel when you learned Joe Biden would become
1: president? I was I was really happy for about an hour. Mm. <laughs> and, well, maybe it was longer than an hour, but like as soon as Donald started his nonsense yeah. And as soon as it became clear that the Republicans were going to let him keep pounding the drum, um, I, I stopped being happy yeah. <laughs> pretty quickly. I mean, I was yeah. relieved, of course. Yeah. But they were playing with fire. They knew it. And um, every day that went by that Mitch McConnell and everybody else in the Republican caucus wasn't calling Biden, declaring him the winner, telling Donald to shut up was a day what we were getting into more and more dangerous territory.
0: Yeah. So, so let's go to election night 2020. And, you know, like, let's take me there. It's 2.30 a.m. Eastern and, and Donald comes out to tell his supporters, this is a fraud on the American public. This is an embarrassment for our country. We were getting ready to win this election. Frankly, we did win this election. And as you mentioned, it would be days before enough votes were counted to know that Biden won. So at that moment, what were you feeling? Because I'm assuming that maybe you were less shocked or less surprised than almost anybody else.
1: By the tenor of his remarks? Yeah. Yeah, of course. Because, and and again, this was something else that that, um, many people, I'm sure, thought before the election. it needed to be called quickly mm-hmm. and the longer it took to call it, the more room there was going to be for him to start sewing division and making false claims and riling people up and lo and behold, you know, I wasn't, I didn't go to sleep. Did I go to sleep that night? If, <laughs> if I did go to sleep that night, yeah. I, didn't, I didn't go to sleep in despair. I mean, I wasn't happy because the fact that he still maybe had an opportunity, although the numbers were looking good and I, I knew, and the media should have prepared all of us for a long yeah. few days, which yeah. they didn't. Yeah. Um, so I wasn't worried necessarily um, because of the way the numbers were looking and the demographics graphics were looking, but I wasn't comfortable by any stretch.
0: And you had been outspoken. Um, you even said it in our in our last conversation that Donald was using attacks on mail-in voting to cheat in the election um and now we know from Jonathan Swans reporting for Axios which is just wonderful that Donald even said that if he was ahead on election night he was planning to declare victory could you foresee this several months long attempt to overturn the election
1: you know again i i knew how desperate he was going to be because you know we have to put this in the context of the fact that Donald has been actively trying to steal this election since the phone call with Vladimir Zelensky Mm. and he's never stopped. The problem is the media stopped paying attention. It's like, okay, he was impeached, but he was acquitted in a, you know, show trial in which there were no witnesses called. Right. His, his active measures against election results, you know, saying it was rigged if Joe Biden won, even before anybody voted Uh, his installing a crony at the post office to destroy the post office undermining people's confidence in mail-in voting during a pandemic, et cetera, et cetera. That stuff wasn't being covered the way it should have been. Right. He was actively cheating. Yeah. Um. So given the lengths he went to and the fact that he still failed, I mean, just imagine, you know, I think about this, the 2016 election too. Uh, imagine what the margin of victory would have been in 2016 without Russia, without James Comey, et, et cetera, et cetera. Same thing twenty twenty without Donald's cheating and, and all the people who are helping him cheat. So given the fact that he still lost yeah. decisively, decisively. You know, and increasingly yeah. decisively. Yeah. I knew that. He, he lost was, over and over again. Yes. Yeah. And <laughs> yes, thanks to his <laughs> idiocy. Um he lost like I don't know. I think does this mean that Joe Biden won like 400 times since he gets to be president for 1600 years now? I don't know. Um, so, although By was, Donald's uh, logic,
0: perhaps. Yeah, right. Well, only if it were him, of <laughs> right, course. Right.
1: So it increased his desperation, hmm. which that didn't surprise me. And again, I swear I am such a Democrat. I am Charlie Brown kicking the football. I really didn't think for some bizarre reason, uh, I guess because it was so decisive a margin, I didn't think the Republicans were going to let him go, keep going on and on. And, and imagine what would have happened if on November 7th, every single Republican or, you know, Republican in its in, in plurality of power of anyway, yeah. said Donald lost Biden, won, we're done here. He would have kept the ranting and raving, but nobody would have been
0: right. listening. Right. And that, essentially brings us to the insurrection. Um, so I want to spend a little bit of time on that and how you were feeling, you know, what was going through your head when you saw the insurrection at the Capitol? I assumed you watched it live.
1: Yeah, I tuned in like a minute before the some representative brought the objections and the Senate and the House had to split. Mm-hmm. And that was really quite soon before uh, the mob started making its way into the capital, And because we only had the view from the outside, like, you know, I guess we saw the, that they, you know, they must've gotten word inside. So senators and representatives started scattering. Right. So, okay. That's not nothing, but mostly we were just seeing it from the outside. And it was very difficult to make sense of what it was because it wasn't video from Libya.
0: Right. Something. Right.
1: Um. So honestly, at the very beginning, it just looks so tawdry. Yeah. You know, I mean, it's like, oh, of course, because everything Donald's involved in is just so demeaned. Mm. And then obviously it was much more, much more serious than yeah. that. Yeah. But like, that was the first, like these, these despicable people with their despicable flags. And, you know, their toxic masculinity and utter um, failure to misunderstand what was going on inside and what they were doing meant it was just disgusting. Yeah. And then, of course, and then not not soon after that, we realized that it was much more than that. Yeah. Yeah, But it was perfectly emblematic of who Donald is, in my view.
0: Yeah. So you said that there was no question that Donald wanted his supporters to storm the Capitol. Can you help us understand, help our listeners understand, what would motivate him to encourage that violence?
1: He believed. He may still believe, for all I know. But certainly up until then, he still believed that there was a chance that he was going to somehow figure out a way. Um, you know, it's it's not an accident that before January 6th he was trying to convince people that Mike Pence actually had the power mm. to call the election in Donald's favor, even though Mike Pence's role on that day was purely ceremonial. Yeah. Uh, He had no power at all. But the fact that Donald was trying to convince people of that suggests that, you know, he somehow thought he could bring pressure to bear on Mike Pence to overstep. What we've now learned, I'm I'm actually shocked that Pence didn't, because even threats yeah. of hanging yeah. didn't get him to yeah. exercise his constitutional responsibility to invoke the 25th Amendment. Right. But that's a that's another story. Entirely. Different
0: conversation. Yeah, yeah. Um, but does that? So, so you mentioned that you think Donald really believed it, and 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 essentially had deluded himself into into believing that. Does that take us back to the you know the the, the cult of the power of positive thinking? uh, stuff that we talked about. Maybe you can reprise that from our last conversation and, and how, you know, Jonathan Swan asked him about that, about that during his interview. And, and essentially it was a, it was a, it was a question about how, how do you reconcile like the fact that reality is not what you want it to be. And and his answer is something, you know, along the lines of, I just, you know, I just believe it's different. You know, can you, uh, can you unpack that for us?
1: Yeah, um Norman Vincent Peale was a minister at Marble Collegiate Church which uh my grandparents ended up belonging to. I think Donald was married there. And what what appealed to my grandfather wasn't certainly the religion because he had no use for religion, but Peale's book, The Power of Positive Thinking. And the thing is like I don't think my grandfather ever read the book. He just the title was all he needed. Mm. And it essentially Um, the shtick was if you think positively enough, only good things will come to you. You will get whatever you want. And if, on the other hand, bad things happen to you, it's your fault. Mm. And that works out really well for a sociopath who, you know, never uh, steps a foot wrong and gets enormous amounts of help in terms of political connections and government funding. But if you're you know, somebody like my grandmother who had osteoporosis and was getting injured all the time, um, or if you're somebody like my dad who had a uh, substance abuse issues, then that's really cruel yeah. <laughs> because yeah. it's your fault. Yeah. It's your weakness of character. You're just not thinking positively enough. So clearly, Donald learned that it's a mistake. Not to be somebody who, you know, never admits to making mistakes, who never admits to being weak in any way. Um, so he and, you know, that's one of the reasons we got into this disaster with COVID yes. because he could yes. not ever admit that something was wrong yeah. because that would mean to be associated with it, even though that's insane. And here we are with 450,000 Americans dead. And, you know, listen, impeachment, trial, insurrection. Sure. Between COVID and what happened at the border, I I don't understand why Donald's not in the frigging Hague. But that's another issue. Sorry. So no,
0: no, not at all. But you but you brought up. I want to come back to the insurrection in a minute. But you brought up COVID, and we learned from Dr. Fauci in late January that Donald told him to be more positive. So, how can we understand the inaction on COVID through that lens?
1: I think initially. It was because of his inability to associate himself with anything bad. No, of course, of course, it's not going to happen. It's got we have 15 cases. It's going to go down to zero because in his mind that just that projects strength. Mm -hmm. But it also inoculates him against being seen as weak Mm -hmm. or being seen as failing, uh, being associated with something that, you know, really had nothing to do with him. But that's that's part of his psychosis. Or his psychopathology, rather. So that got us way deep into it to the point where just talking positively about it wasn't going to get us anywhere. And if that kept happening, things were going to get completely out of control. So the reason they got completely out of control was because in order to change course, Donald would have had to admit that he'd been wrong. Because for most of us mature adults, course correcting means evaluating our um, actions in retrospect, realizing that maybe uh, we should have done something differently Mm -hmm. and then changing our minds. Mm -hmm. For him, course correcting means admitting you were wrong. And he can't do that any more than he can associate himself with anything negative.
0: So while we're on this topic of COVID, and and before we come back to... The insurrection. I just want to. You mentioned four hundred fifty thousand Americans dead, nearly half a million COVID deaths, and and I just want to take a moment to ask you what impact this level of mass death could have on our collective mental health.
1: Uh, we we are. Uh, staring down the barrel at the greatest mental health crisis this country has ever seen for various reasons. I mean, it's the kind of crisis we wouldn't be equipped to deal with at the best of times. But we're so weakened. Yeah, We're weakened by four years of horrifically bad uh, governing. We're weakened by the extraordinary amounts of division. Um, We're weakened by the fact that one side rejects reality, rejects science, rejects basic human decency. Um, And we're weakened by the intersecting crises of COVID and the ensuing uh, economic fallout. Um, And weakened by the fact that the last two things were totally avoidable. So we have to start grappling with this right now because I I think what's going to happen is as soon as people start emerging after the vaccine is distributed widely enough, etc., or we've reached herd immunity, we're going to start seeing symptoms like after the first, oh, hooray, we're free again. Uh, we're going to we're going to see people start having to face the fact that they've been traumatized, and we have all the the analogy I use. It's like it's as if this country had been at war, and every single one of us got sent off to war at the same yeah. time. But yeah, we're involved at varying degrees. Some of us were on uh, the front lines facing enemy fire. Some of us were you know yeah. filing, yeah. <laughs> or right. some of us were medics. But and we all came back at the same time. Yeah, and if we don't start thinking about it and preparing for it now, you know, it's sort of similar to the medical issues with COVID. We had, we knew that this was coming. We knew a hundred years ago what had been done wrong. Uh, This stuff was totally avoidable. Um, The mental health crisis could have been at least mitigated, if not totally avoided. So it's partially being prepared, but, um, and understanding also how we got here, um, my, my next book is called The Reckoning, and it's essentially about this mostly, but it, it starts with talking about the history of trauma in America and how this country was born in trauma. Um, it was born in the trauma inflicted by the majority on two entire races of people. Um, it's, it's a trauma of genocide and, and enslavement that has not only never been atoned for, but it's never been acknowledged. And we see it how this has played out. Uh, the the fact that that certain minority populations have have been um affected by COVID uh inordinately. And um, we see it with the vaccine rollout. You know, the yeah. most vulnerable populations aren't getting the vaccine uh to the degree they should be. So it just it's it's an attempt to understand how we got here. It's an attempt to lay out some potential. Um strategies for dealing with the short term fallout, but it's also um I guess a a guide uh to how we create structural change so that we're never you know um yeah. caught flat footed again
0: yeah I am so looking forward to reading this because i I, I agree with you that it's such an important. Uh, important issue, and it but it does feel overwhelming um, you know the the scale of this the crisis that we're facing. How important is it, you know just as a starting point that that we begin to talk about the stigma around mental health and how do we do that?
1: This is a shockingly still an issue you yeah. know it's, it's just amazing yeah. to me um, how we still can't quite deal with this properly um i think you know at a basic level it's because in the west there's this ridiculous bifurcation between physical and mental health Mm -hmm. which makes it seem like it's something separate right um which it it isn't yeah um and there's also the sense that mental health is a luxury (laughs)
0: That's well, yeah, that's true although when someone says, you know i'm I have to go to the doctor, you know you know my my leg's broken or something, there isn't the same stigma of going to a doctor to have them address the wound or just for a regular checkup as there is with you know I'm going to see my my therapist
1: there's no right? stigma
0: right there's None- no stigma at all. Why do you think that persists, given everything we know about mental health and everything you're spending your days writing about right now? Um, and, and then again, how do we how do we begin to open up those conversations and and remove the stigma? Because it seems to me like that's the first barrier to addressing the the crisis.
1: You know, it's a complicated issue, and uh, you know, I don't, sir, I certainly don't have all of the answer I, I I'm guessing at some point it's sort of a financial mm. thing too because it's expensive mm-hmm. but I think you know it starts with the fact that it's it's considered this separate thing and and i I'm not saying that we should buy completely into the medical model of uh, psychiatric disorders but you know a lot of the stuff is, chemical and physiological and you know nobody would ever tell me you know not to stop taking my asthma meds mm-hmm. right <laughs> so um you know but then th- there's the fact that certain things like i i have ptsd i don't have ptsd because of a chemical imbalance yeah. um i yeah. mean don't get me wrong i'm sure yeah. it affects you know, there are epigenetic effects or in the long term, but you know, I have PTSD because of something that happened to me. And I think we're going to see, be seeing a lot of that in the next few months. Um, but why that puts it in a separate category is, is, it continues to be mystifying. And I think that we need to, you know, we need to um, elevate our conversations about mental illness and psychiatric and psychological disorders. There should be, you know, there's a surgeon general. There should be some cabinet level position right now uh, that addresses mental illness because you see it, you know, you see it in the VA. You see it, it. I mean, it's everywhere. It affects everybody. And in some ways, it's more costly in some ways than, you know, diseases of uh, physiological diseases because people don't understand it. There's not, there's no, uh, you know there's very little support system
0: yeah. at
1: the community level um and just a lack of understanding and if we can ch- change that it like if there there's no better opportunity than now i mean we're we're going to hit rock bottom and if that's what it takes well then so be it because um we we're we're in for a very difficult time after having experienced <laughs> a very <Yeah>. difficult time <laughs>
0: so many difficult times on, you know, so many traumatic things that, that we're processing. And I want to come back to the insurrection now, but I think these two issues are are really interlinked. On Monday, we saw Congresswoman Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez spend it out in, about an hour and a half talking about her experiences during the attack on the Capitol, how she was forced to hide from the attackers. I want to dig into the, the, the trauma that... Um, that these elected officials must be facing and uh and and like i want to talk about the trauma that the people who were there also must be dealing with at this point
1: you mean the perpetrators i
0: mean i mean both i mean it, mm-hmm. it, yeah i mean all of it how do you how do you view that event through a mental health lens
1: you know it's interesting it's it's sort of all connected like this is to me that 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 was sort of the the culmination of telling people for a year that covid is a hoax and they shouldn't have to wear masks and you know one thing donald's really good at is making people make micro concessions right Mm,
0: say more about that
1: well you know he'll do this sort of thing um like if you were ever on his plane for example he'd say Hey, isn't this the greatest thing you ever seen? And you don't want to be rude, so you say, "Yeah, mm. Donald, it's the greatest mm. thing I've ever seen," <laughs> even if you couldn't care less. Um, so he like gets you to buy in a little mm. bit,
0: mm. a
1: little bit. And if you're prone to, you know, uh, if you have authoritarian leanings, mm. um, or if for some bizarre reason you're taken in by his sort of superficial charm,
0: yeah,
1: then that leaves you open to making even greater concessions over time. So the the, the experience of the Capitol was sort of the uh, logical conclusion to a year during which we were split along. You know, people say, oh, you know, we're living in two realities. No, we're not. There's yeah. one reality. Yeah.
0: yeah, And the
1: other people are living in some bizarre hellscape in yeah. which, yeah. you know, they're perfectly happy putting their themselves, their children, and their fellow human beings at risk of death because they don't want to wear a mask and yet because you know we shouldn't tell them what to do with their bodies and yet women you know it's just insane so and what what we're also going to find is that even people who who were convinced that covid wasn't a big deal they're going to be suffering too yeah either because they're going to realize at some point that they were being lied to I think or, a lot of people
0: are seeing that now on, on Parlor And so we've seen the meltdowns and stuff. but Right. Yeah.
1: Um, or they're just, they are going to have to exist within the devastation that they helped cause. Mm. Mm-hmm. So at the Capitol, again, we see, you know, there's one side. And again, all of the Congress people are not innocent. Right. However, despite the fact that they were probably pro-insurrection, I mean, did they seriously think that the mob was going to come and ask for ID before they killed them? Yeah. Wait, are you a Republican? Okay, you're a Republican, <laughs> but are you are you pro insurrection or not? Yeah. You know, they weren't gonna be carting people. Right. So right. um
0: there was that one clip uh of the of the of the of the rioters in the Senate looking at Ted Cruz's objection, thinking that it was that he was selling them out, but it took them a minute to put together that he was actually, you know, on their side. And it, that caused a lot of confusion.
1: Right. And even though I mean I couldn't care less about Ted Cruz yeah. except that he should be in a federal prison. Um, even though he's was completely supportive and one of the major uh instigators yeah. in this case. Yeah. Even he m- must have been traumatized. Uh, because it didn't matter which side you were on, right. you were right. the people being attacked. You were the people whose whose place of work was no longer safe for you. And then on the other side, the attacker, you know, all of those people are complicit in four deaths and the murder of a policeman i mean that plus the fact that they all went in there not at all expecting that there would be consequences for their action right a lot because of white privilege but also because i mean and this is my and i think we're seeing more evidence for this but like to me this was clear from the very beginning this was coordinated this was planned yeah So they must have felt that there were people high up enough to protect them Mm -hmm. because they had no compunction Mm -hmm. about doing what they did and Mm -hmm. totally desecrating,
0: Mm -hmm.
1: you know, our capital. Um, So, and look, some people are never going to get it because they're part of the worst of us, you know, that 22% of us that um, is just incapable of changing, it uh, has no desire to change. They just want to hate who they hate. And, yeah. you know, the, the the goal of liberal democracy is to contain those
0: people. Right. right um, the right.
1: problem, though, is that from 2017 to 2019, 100% of the federal government represented those people. So their disease of racism and misogyny and white supremacy metastasized. And I think that's a large reason why the n- number of people who voted for Donald increased yeah. so significantly.
0: So what impact could the demeaning language that, that Donald and, and his enablers used to talk about, to talk about Democrats broadly, um, you know, speaking of the way these things metastasized and Nancy Pelosi and AOC specifically, how, how could that language have, have, what impact could it have on the insurrectionists' actions?
1: Well, if you, if you convince somebody... That a person in government who has a considerable amount of power mm-hmm. is out to destroy your country. You know, because all of these people claim to be deeply patriotic yeah. you know, with their friggin' Confederate flags yeah. and their swastas. Swastaf- <laughs> I mean, it's just incredible. Um, but, uh, you know, they claim to love this country. And if you demean and dehumanize people to that degree, and make it clear that you know they are the they are the enemy and if we allow them to remain in power we may lose our country you know it's not that hard i mean those people were incited deliberately incited for weeks before this happened and very viscerally that day yeah. for hours yeah before you know, um, they, they pass the point of no return.
0: I wanted to ask you to help us, I think we're getting at it, to help us understand why so many people would be willing to engage in an insurrection for Donald's benefit. And I think you're starting to speak to that. You also mentioned authoritarian personality disorder the last time that we talked, and you mentioned a couple of times here. And I remember uh, that really helping me understand that we weren't talking about the authoritarian figure himself, Donald, the wannabe dictator, but but actually that applies to the people who are in, who, who lean toward that characteristic. Can you explain that?
1: Yeah. Um, you know, people who, who either have uh, you know the number who have uh, people who have authoritarian personalities is is probably I mean I don't know what the percentage is, but it's not like it's not like all those seventy four million people. Right, right. right. Um but you know, then there's a significantly larger number of people who have authoritarian tendencies. And these are people who value homogeneity. You know, they feel threatened by demographic changes. These are people who value strong, quote unquote, leaders. And I, the reason I put that in quotes is because I know Donald to be the weakest person on mm-hmm. the planet. So it mm-hmm. just sho- it continues mm-hmm. to shock me that people think he's strong. But yeah. I need to get over myself I think <laughs> um, because people do. <laughs> Um so uh, a study was done recently that showed that tried to isolate the main factor that compelled people to vote for Donald and it's not racism it's not misogyny it's not white supremacy it's authoritarianism. Mm. So when you have somebody so convinced that this so-called leader is going to protect them and you know save their version of america which quite honestly is is a a fascist hellscape not a democracy <laughs> right. but yeah. whatever yeah. they don't know that um then it's going to get easier and easier for them to get them to cross a line that they may not have crossed. i've been thinking about this a lot in terms of cults mm. um i mean obviously i'm still trying to work out how to how to make sense of it because. I understand how cults work. I mean, these are closed systems, Um, you know, and it's also like abusive relationships. It's not like on the first date, the guy punches you, (laughs) you know, it takes months, years. Uh, And in cults, you know, there are micro concessions, as we talked about earlier. Um, You know, you over time, you start accepting stranger and stranger things that you never would have done on day one. And there are also micro aggressions. So. But that's in again in a very closed system in which the leaders control everything. We don't live in a closed system. I mean, some of these people do, and you know, there's the um cl- the closed information that they're only watching Fox, they're only watching Newsmax or OAN, or they're only going on eight chan or whatever it's called. But they still they their children go to school, you know, they have jobs, they they have. Uh, contact with people who maybe think they're I don't know so it's it's a little harder for me to understand how they can be so thoroughly co-opted um but they are and um were were put into such a frenzy that they were willing to I mean some of those people went there willing to lay down their lives for their yeah, cause yeah. And which what was their cause by the way right right you know yeah. but that's where we are.
0: So what environmental factors do you think go into that? Is this a, is this a uh, you know, from the little I understand about authoritarian personality uh, tendencies or disposition, I'm not sure what the, you know, the appropriate term is, it, it, it can be latent in a society and there are certain environmental factors that, that, that bring it out or, 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 um, or make it more pronounced. Is that accurate?
1: Yeah. I mean, I think um, the fact that this is an incredibly racist country. And those views are they're either tacitly accepted or they're um, championed. And in the last four years, they've been championed. Mm. You know, uh, it's the same same thing with misogyny. And on top of that, you also have I mean, it's what I said earlier, you know, the the 22 percent of the population that's usually contained by a liberal de- democracy was was represented by our entire government. Um, and and felt the power of that you know they were in a position of power like they've never been before and the republicans have have you know it's this is a four decades long project they have been masterfully convincing people to vote against their own self-interest to advance certain social causes and that's part of it too plus the fact that i mean i i and i don't mean this as an excuse because the whole you know economic anxiety thing four years ago made me want to shoot myself Uh, because that was just code for racism Uh, (laughs) but there is a increasing economic hardship uh across the lower classes in this country there's an insane increase in uh, the wealth gap between mm -hmm. the very rich um the middle class is uh shrinking um you know we're we're finally raising the minimum wage to fifteen dollars an hour by twenty twenty five that's still not enough. I cannot imagine living on fifteen dollars an hour at six hundred dollars a week. that's insane. It's insane. How do you raise children making six hundred dollars a week so um you know so what's interesting is the Republicans who who are largely responsible for creating. These environmental conditions are the ones who stoke them. Yeah. And use them to get people to elect other people who are gonna to continue to exacerbate the problems while pretending that they're the saviors.
0: Yeah. So these other, you know, crises that we talked about earlier, the pandemic, uh, the campaign against mail-in voting, the stop the steal campaign, all of these things seem to me as Environmental factors that sort of activate the, the the fear mechanism in our brains and and sort of make us more, especially certain people who have those tendencies, um, more likely to gravitate toward strongman rhetoric and um, and and conspiracy theories.
1: Yeah, and one of the things that Donald did do, and I, I don't. As far as I understand it, it wasn't his idea, hmm. but uh, it's something that he he glommed onto quite early because he realized how effective it was. He added another enemy. Um, so you know, for reasons that I'm still trying to, I mean, I kind of get it, but it still blows my mind that black people in this country are the enemy, even though like we're the one, you know, the the white majority is the one who enslaved, tortured, and you know, and then re-enslave them and continue to like steal their rights. And it's incredible, but yeah, so black people, are the enemy, but they needed an enemy from without as well. Yeah. And that's where the wall came in and the hordes and the caravans and
0: yeah. all of that insanity. Yeah. yeah. So,
1: um, I think it is part of the project to,
0: I mean, this all goes to our collective trauma, right?
1: Yeah. And, and when <laughs> there, there's uh, in Wuthering Heights, there's a scene in which um, one of the main characters is having this terrible nightmare, and this, this like wraith is outside. This tiny little child is yeah. outside in this blizzard yeah. and trying to get in. And she breaks the window, and the character grabs the kid's arm and starts scraping across the broken glass. And the line is, Terror made me cruel. Oh. And yeah, that's where we are. You get people scared enough. And they will not only vote against their own interests; they will they will take the rest of us down oh. with them. Um, and when
0: it's a really chilling line.
1: Yes, it's one of my favorite lines in all of literature because it's so evocative and it's so true. <laughs> um, and when you when you're dealing with people who live in very homogeneous communities, they have no contact with people who are different from them in any way. I think it is a lot easier to tap into that fear.
0: So what do you think, switching gears a little bit, what do you think compels people like Marjorie Taylor Greene to be so beholden to someone like Donald? How, how long do you think, you know, how long do you think we'll see him influencing people to that degree
1: well, somebody like, well, I'm not really sure about her. Uh, I'm think if she had I'm not, any, not really but, sure
0: about her either. Yeah.
1: <laughs> I mean, I think if, if she had anybody who cared about her, they would put her in a 72-hour cycle <laughs> for evaluation because she's a deeply disturbed human being. And the fact that she's in Congress says more about the people who voted for her than it does about her. But let's say she's sane for the sake of argument. That's just about power. They continue, as long as they believe that Donald is the person who is going to be dictating uh, where the Repo- Republican Party goes in the next two to four years, as long as he stays relevant. And by the way, he should not have been relevant as of November 8th. The only reason he continues to be is because the Republicans are idiots. They're, yes,
0: they're making him relevant. Yeah. yeah. Uh, so I want to you come know, back to that, but mm-hmm. yes.
1: So I think it's just power. It's pure power. You know, um, Mitch McConnell can say whatever he wants, but he voted with the 45 senators who Mm -hmm, mm -hmm, claim that this mm -hmm. impeachment is unconstitutional. Yeah. So let's let's just watch what they do.
0: Yeah. I mean, we've seen people risk getting covid uh, to go to rallies and we've seen people commit treason in his name.
1: I I have to be honest with you. I understand the treason. I don't understand the covid. I don't Mm. understand. These are people Mm. Forget about not just the rally people, but the people in the executive branch, the people in Congress. Yeah. What is up yeah. with that?
0: Who are smart people.
1: Yeah. yeah. It, I mean, and it, it cannot, like, if you really thought that your life and the lives of your children were in danger, yeah. then no, nothing Donald said could get you to do something that reckless right. and potentially deadly. Right. So something else is going, I mean, I kind of... Like I think this whenever I, I have the great misfortune of seeing a picture of Jared. Um,
0: you know what comes immediately to mind is Even that, the know, Billboard Mary?
1: <laughs> that I liked. It just needed to be bars in front of know, him. But right other now. than that, no, the billboard was great. But when I other than the billboard, when I see him, I think, you know, arrogance makes you stupid. Yeah. I mean he might be stupid anyway. Yeah. But yeah. For a lot of these people, it's just their sense of entitlement. And their sense of privilege and the sense that, hey, it's not, it, I'm way too special for this to happen to me. You know, and what was infuriating is that despite how many of them got it, like, didn't seem like many of them got it very badly. Right. And that's just doesn't yeah. seem
0: fair. <laughs> <laughs> so, so I want to go to QAnon for a minute and back to Marjorie Taylor Greene, Um, And maybe less about her specifically, but more in general. What do you see... As the dangers of having QAnon supporters in Congress, because she's not the only one, and 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 it, 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 like the fact that what was once a small conspiracy that has now grown like wildfire, and and now is espoused, you know, by people walking the halls of Congress, you know what. Talk about the dangers of that and and, and how you make sense of that.
1: Well, you know, it's incredibly dangerous. The more it's allowed to go on, the more influence it's going to have, the more people like her we're going to get in Congress, et cetera, et cetera. And, I mean, this is happening because the Tea Party happened. And, you know, at that time, not because the Tea Party happened, but because of how the Republicans— in power responded to it. They actually thought that they could harness that monster. You know? Yeah. That monster was riling people up and it was uh was getting people to believe in really stupid things (laughs) that benefited uh, it taxed enough already. Okay. Um unless you're a trillionaire, probably not. Um, you know, and the Republican parties thought that they could, could could you know they got they had the tiger by the tail and they could hang on. And then over time as sort of -of middle-of-the-road Republicans started getting primaried by people farther and farther and farther to the right and then started losing those primaries, uh, we are now at a place where 100% of our elected Republicans are either complicit with, silent about, or actively um, the radical you know pro fascist right um and they they can't control it anymore, so instead of being responsible decent pro american pro democratic politicians, they are all in, and um you know, you think Lindsey Graham is going to risk being primary no mm-hmm. he because he'd lose probably mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. he is going to be as rabid as they get
0: so I want to get your take on unity for a moment because there's been a lot of talk about that since the inauguration and we did just live through an insurrection at the Capitol, what seems to be an attempted coup. And I want to know what you think about how important it will be to hold these bad actors accountable before we can move toward unity, which I think ultimately is where we ought to go, and where 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 America will find its stability. But but it seems to me we can't really get there until we reckon with what just happened for lots of reasons. But I just want to know how you're thinking about that.
1: You're absolutely right. If we don't hold these people accountable, starting with Donald and and going on down to uh, the people who stormed the Capitol, you know, I don't care if they just wandered inside. They're insurrectionists, and they need to be treated accordingly. Um, then we're done, you know? Yeah. Like what could happen
0: if we do not deal with that? Like what, what is the, what are the lessons that then are learned if we don't?
1: The, The lessons that are learned is if you're a Republican president, you can do whatever you want. You can steal from the treasury. You can overturn elections. Uh, you can do anything you want in the, in the last two weeks. You can fire whomever, you can install whomever. You can, um, you know, and, and I, I know this isn't going to happen, but part of me wishes that Biden would say, let's assume for the sake of argument that Donald gets acquitted, that Biden would start, you know, just taking money from the treasury. And I mean, not that I don't want him to do anything illegal, but, you know, just taking money from the treasury and, and I don't know, just distributing it to food banks or, um, using it to build huge homeless shelters or, um, you know, I want Biden to start like breaking the rules, but for, for good. Right. And, and let's see what the Republicans do because there were no consequences for Donald. Why there should, why should there be for Joe Biden? Obviously there's a double standard, but you know, I, if there aren't if he's not convicted, then there has to be another way to test the system because otherwise it's going to make it easier for a Republican to win. It's going to make it easier for them to win in 2022 in the Senate and maybe take the house. It's going to be easier for them to win in 2024. Um, And if they do win again, then we are, this country will have failed. Uh, So holding him accountable. And again, I don't think, I do not think the Republicans are going to convict. What I'm hoping is going to happen is the Republic, sorry, the Democrats put on such a damning case that anybody who fails to vote to convict him exposes him or herself as a traitor to this country. The American people who are paying attention will understand that and that the evidence will be so compelling and so egregious that the DOJ is going to have to step in and bring criminal charges.
0: In other words, to frame the question that they must vote on as America or Trump, literally.
1: Yeah. Well, Donald. Yes.
0: Yeah, Donald or Trump. <laughs> yeah. Thank you, America <laughs> or Donald. <laughs> thank you. Uh, so, I'm over it. I. I it's a lost cause. <laughs> <guns. laughs> so, so I, I want to talk about before we leave this section, and then I and then I want to ask you about the rest of the family. I want you to help us understand what impact the attack on the Capitol can have on our mental health. Uh, you know through the lens of trauma. And I want to read you Judith Herman's definition of trauma, which I'm sure you're familiar with, which is at the moment of trauma, the victim is rendered helpless by overwhelming force. Traumatic events overwhelm the ordinary systems of care that give people a sense of control, connection, and meaning. And given that the entire country just witnessed this event, both the event and the last four years, how has our sense of control, connection, and meaning been eroded.
1: Yeah, and it doesn't help that uh, the insurrection happened after almost a year of loss of connection <laughs> because of COVID. And you know, the the one of the problems with trauma is that you can be traumatized by something you witness. You don't, you know, we didn't have to be there watching it on television was so destabilizing because it's like the fortress was breached our, you know, the symbolic fortress of our enduring democracy. Yeah. Which is
0: in a way is our safety. It's a, it's a sense of security for us. Right. And
1: this is after almost a year of our loss of faith in, and our, uh, you know, our inability To trust our fellow human beings because on the one hand for for many of us it's just been i mean yeah the isolation and you know if in i think new york and new jersey had different experiences at the beginning because it was sort of this unknown thing and it was terrifying in a completely novel way um but you know generally speaking over time You know, it's it's the isolation and the mask wearing and sort of being being wary of your fellow human beings. That takes a toll. But much more traumatizing has been having to acknowledge that the people who we entrust to take care of, to be professional, to keep us safe, were not just Utterly untrustworthy, but actively trying to get us killed. And worsening a situation. Like we should have been done with this by May. Um, so on top of that, then to see how fragile this democracy of ours is. I mean, despite the fact it's not really democracy yet, anyway. Um, and knowing how close we came to losing it and knowing that we still can't let our guard down because we still might lose it. Um it's it's exhausting. It's it's demoralizing. Um and yet we can't stop worrying. Mm-hmm. You know. So um it's although it's it's tragic that January 6th happened after this year we lived in, it's also not surprising.
0: And I know you're still working on this for your new book, but is there, you know, is there anything about a potential framework for how to, how, how you're even thinking about a framework for how to, how to approach this collective trauma that you, that you want to share?
1: Well, I'm still working. It's, it's interesting that the, that the stuff that's happened in the last month has sort of complicated uh, my project a bit. but. You know, the first thing I'm trying to do is take a step back and, and look at yes, we're all traumatized, but we're so traumatized we're traumatized in so many different ways. You know, frontline workers are traumatized another way. I mean, for a lot of us, like I said, it's it's sort of this passive trauma of um like I don't know about you, but when I see that forty four hundred Americans died in a day, that's friggin' traumatizing. Um and because it is like we just kind of start getting numb to that, which is also really bad. bad. So, you know, like, and I've talked to, I've talked to friends who were mental health professionals and they're traumatized in a completely different way because they're treating people while suffering from exactly the same thing, you know? (laughs) Um, So that takes a different toll and people who have young children or people who are alone. So there's a lot to kind of tease out there. But I think regardless of that, what needs to happen is a systematic structural approach to getting resources at the school level, at the local level, at the community level and uh, at the federal level, because we can't um, you know, it's not like we can deal with this on a case by case basis. We need something huge to happen. Um, so, but, you know, and, and, recognizing that, yes, they're all, we're all traumatized in different ways to one degree or another, but we all, all are traumatized. And like, that's sort of the point we need to start from.
0: Okay. I want to, uh, before we close, what, what do you think, uh, life looks like post-presidency for Donald and your cousins? <laughs> Oh man. Um,
1: (sighs) I, I disown them. Um, I'm I'm sure they care. Um,
0: I mean, there's obviously a constellation of things bearing down on them right now. Um, but you know, take us into the, like, give us a window into what's probably happening.
1: Well, I think the first week was probably, it was the worst week of Donald's life. (laughs) Um, and unfortunately, as usually happens, somebody came to his rescue with this uh, by floating this idea of a third party, which then you know got the Republicans in line, which is why most of them have already said they're going to, to acquit no matter what. Um, so that's a drug, because as we said earlier, it still gives him relevance. It still gives him this sense that you know he will have a platform. Um, although if they, if the, if section three of the 14th amendment isn't invoked, barring him from ever running for office again, then we're, that's, that would just be horrific. But all of that having been said, um, it, I, there's a way in which I think none of that's going to matter because Donald is looking at dealing with three potentially very, very serious issues. One. Um, is his banks. Nobody wants, nobody's going to lend him money anymore um, legally. And uh, there, there's, there's literally no reason for them not to start calling in their debt, which is, you know, in the hundreds of millions in the next two to four years. Um, then there are at least three major lawsuits coming his way. Um one has potentially criminal two of them have potentially criminal implications, and one of them, mine, has potentially very serious financial implications. plus also it would you know if if uh, if all goes well um and i I clean his clock, yeah. you know yeah, <laughs> it would yeah. be bad for him in other ways. but I think honestly, the e. Jean Carroll lawsuit is the the most significant of them because. You Know mine is a fraud. Like we all know that Donald commits fraud. It's not like right. we would be revealing right, anything right. new. It would be more the 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 financial the, the damages, punishment. That's right. Uh e. Carroll, if if that goes well, will you know definitively show that those of us who believe emphatically that Donald is a, a serial sexual assaulter slash rapist, uh, you know, nobody's gonna be able to pretend otherwise. Um And then, of course, there are serious state level charges, um, certainly in New York, potentially in Georgia. And I believe that if there's anything that good good has come out of, you know, the post election period, it's that Donald's behavior has been so egregious. It's been so anti-American. It's been so dangerous that it increases the urgency of state's attorneys general and district attorneys to throw the book at him.
0: So just one last question before we go. Um I'm I'm really curious about what this past year was like for you. Year? <laughs> I mean, I mean, you know you were thrust pretty prominently into the public eye during a very heated election. And I wonder what all of this has been like for you.
1: Honestly, COVID has been the backdrop for everything. And, um, you know, people ask me how my life has changed. Well, you know, it hasn't. (laughs) (laughs) Um, I mean, don't get me wrong. It, it, it has been in some ways, um, really, it's, it's amazing. Like I've made connections. I never would have made before. I've had conversations with people. I've never would have been able to have, Uh, you know, having a platform is cool. Um, and I intend to use it for good. (laughs) So, so that's great, but it's all in the privacy of my own living room. (laughs) So, you know, um, and again, don't get me wrong. I like like, conversations like, like it's being on, you know, TV for eight minutes. It's like, that's like a chore. Yeah. Like this is, this is the kind of exchange that, that keeps me going because we get to talk about things in a really deep way and, and you know, it's, it's a conversation and it's productive in a way that, you know, being on MSNBC for four minutes isn't. Yeah. Um, but again, you know, we're still living lives of isolation and we're
0: doing this via zoom as much as it would be fun to have you in the studio. (laughs) Yeah.
1: Yeah. And, um, you know, it's, it's wearing, it, it really wears on you. And, I was having a conversation with a friend of mine and just she started talking about how, you know, she's hit the covid wall, which I did about six weeks ago and I'm still attached to it, apparently. And and then she said, but, you know, I'm so lucky because I I work at home and I don't have to worry about this. And I'm like, you know what? Stop doing that. Because, yes, are other people suffering much worse than we are? Of course. But it's still horrible. It's 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 taking a toll on everybody. And, you know, um, the good news, though, uh, assuming, you know, we all get through this and get vaccinated and stuff, is that um, and I feel like there is a lot to look forward to, um, you know, and that um, especially if I mean, hopefully Donald will go away. But if the Republican Party continues down the road, it's going, I, I would like I would love to continue to be part of you know that conversation um and it will be nice to do that outside
0: (laughs) it will be very nice (laughs) i will look forward to that and maybe one day we can have one of those conversations here in person that'd be that'd be really nice
1: it really would and then actually like go out for a drink in public (laughs) with other
0: people mary thank you so much for making the time for this conversation and thank you to everyone at home for listening if you have any questions or advice for us, we have a new email address and you can reach us at podcast at If you enjoy the show and find this work meaningful, you can also help us by rating and reviewing the show wherever you get your podcasts and by sharing this episode with anyone you think may find it interesting or useful. I'm Ron Steslow. I'll see you in the next episode.